As we come now before the very word of God, if you'd like to read with me, we'll be in Genesis chapter 8. And we've got a good number of verses here in Genesis 8. But before we read them, would you please pray with me? Our great God, we know that your wisdom calls us to listen, to watch at your gates, and to wait beside your doors. Lord, we are here now. Help us to listen like this, to sit now with patient and eager hearts, to attend to your holy word and the message you would have for us. Guide me in my words and guide each of us in the hearing of it that we might believe and trust you more. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Genesis in chapter 8. We'll take up this morning uh, these first 19 verses. So Genesis chapter 8 will begin in verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot. And she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening. And behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. And then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. On the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, 
every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. This is God's word. Well, it took us a while, but we finally made it now off the ark. It's been a few months now that we've been floating on these waters, and it is about time now that we address the time here. So we know from these texts that Noah was not to enter and exit the ark as he pleases, that he's commanded by God exactly when to go into the ark and commanded by God exactly when to go out of the ark. And between those two commands, to go in and to come out, a lot of time passes. Now, some people think that Noah was on the ark for 40 days and 40 nights. But that's only the amount of time that the rains were falling to flood the earth. But the waters continue to remain on the earth for a lot longer than that. You might have noticed, just in reading this section, there are a lot of time markers peppered throughout the flood narrative. There's mention of seven days, and 40 days, and 150 days, and another 40 days, and another seven days, and another seven days. It's all over the place. It seems like the author thinks it's important to note the time, which means this is something that we should take notice of as well. He even notes the exact beginning and ending times of the ark marked to the day according to Noah's life. It begins at the beginning of chapter 7 that that Noah goes in in his 600th year on month 2, day 17. And then we hear now in our section that that he goes out in year 601, month 2, day 27. So if you missed all those numbers, I'll just do the math for us. The total time that Noah and all the rest who are with him that are on the ark, they're on there together for one year and ten days. Now, let's pause a moment and let that sink in. That's a year and change, all spent in one place. You know, the ark's pretty big, but it's not that big. Just the footprint of the ark is smaller than the total area of a football field. You think you get cabin fever in winter? When you're stuck inside, when the weather's bad outside. Now imagine living on a football field with walls on all sides and deep water all around you as far as your eye can see for one full year. That's a whole year of, of holidays without stepping one foot off of that football field. You'd spend New Year's there, then Valentine's Day there, then Easter, then Fourth of July, and then Halloween, and Thanksgiving, and some sort of Christmas thing there, and then, and then rolls around, and New Year again, we're still, we didn't we do New Year on this football field? And then finally, finally, God says, 
okay, it's time, and you need to go. Wouldn't you think you would get a bit stir-crazy? I mean, I, I would, I probably would, surely would. How could you not go crazy in all, in all of that? You know, in the midst of this flood, in God's judgment over all the earth, God has spared Noah. God has shut Noah safely in the ark. God has remembered Noah. All of that is God's mercy. But we shouldn't think about these mercies of God as if they were like a blanket that he gives once to Noah. You know, God's mercy is much more like a fountain that continues to flow. That there are fresh, new mercies each moment, each day to sustain us. Noah's going to need that refreshment of daily mercy for a full 375 days. And I think he would probably especially need it, you know, a sense of that renewed mercy in the last part of those days. You know, have you ever been uh, on an airplane flight, you know, heading off somewhere, all the packing up, and you get shuttled on, you find your seat, you buckle in, you do all the things, you fly, let's say, three hours, and then the plane lands, and it taxis into its gate, and the seatbelt light goes off, bing, and then everyone takes their seatbelt off, and then what do we all immediately do? Stand up and smash into the aisle as fast as we possibly can, you know? It, it, it's, it's, it feels like that's the longest part of the whole trip. That three minutes just waiting to get off the plane seems to last longer than the whole three hours of the flight itself. I wonder if it might have been the same way here. You know, toward the last leg of Noah's journey on the ark, he's not smashed into the aisle of an airplane. He's, he's, sending, he's sending birds out of the window to sort of test the ground. He sends out a raven and then several attempts with, with, with a dove. And you get the sense that he, that he knows that he's getting close. The, 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 the end of his time on the ark is drawing near. It feels so close, and yet it's so far. Here, we're now told in this last leg, at least toward the end, a particular thing that Noah does. And we assume Noah must have been doing this throughout his entire time on the ark, but it's only now in this last little leg that we hear it expressly named that Noah waited. That Noah waited. It's in verse 10 of our text. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth a dove out of the ark. It's repeated again in 12. Then he waited another seven days. So today we want to look at this. We want to look at waiting. We all do it. I've never been on an ark with a floating zoo trying to wait and to get off. But we're all waiting for something. Probably lots of things. Some of those wait times are short, some are long. Some of the things we wait for are small, some are very, very big. So our big question today is, what does it look like to wait 
well. What does it look like to wait well? We're going to use Noah here as a test case and then compare him with what the rest of the scriptures say, but we want to look now at four things that waiting does, and then we'll end with a path that will help lead us through that waiting, but you'll have to wait for for that part. First, let's look at the four things that waiting does. First, waiting wiggles. Is that what you thought I was going to start with? I was very excited to get to start with that one. Waiting wiggles. We are told in this chapter that Noah waited. That's the English word used for it, and it's the right word. But it was helpful, at least to me, I hope also to you, to compare how this word wait in the Hebrew was used in its other context in the scriptures, because I found a lot there that I did not expect. This word that here describes waiting in other places in the scriptures describes the action of a person who's been wounded by an archer's arrow. It also describes the action of women who have come together to dance. It also describes the action of a stormy tempest that's like a tornado. What on earth do those things have in common? A guy wounded by an arrow, women who are dancing in a spinning tornado. Together, those seem to suggest that this word is related to a particular type of of movement. Especially referencing things like swirling or squirming or winding or wiggling. And now in this context, it makes a good bit of sense, doesn't it? that there would be an element of motion, physical motion, embedded in our waiting. You know, sometimes people assume that good waiting looks like motionlessness. That if I'm really waiting well, I'm going to be completely stationary. That's why sometimes you hear people tell kids to sit down, sit still, Don't move. And maybe there's a time and place for that, I suppose. Perhaps there's there's a good practice of learning some self-control there. Uh, That's another matter. But there are many times that that waiting, if we're to be like Noah, Noah isn't stationary at all. It's very wiggly. And the, the wiggles of waiting are a fitting thing, even a God-given thing, not just for kids, for adults too. We don't outgrow the wiggles of waiting. So if you're just waiting for this sermon to be over, which I hope you're doing more than that, but if you're just waiting, you know, A little wiggle, I won't be offended, okay? A little wiggle can help, right? It's okay to move. It's even a good thing. That's the first thing waiting does. It wiggles. Number two, waiting winces. Waiting winces. That is, it often brings a measure of ache or pain. This one's a little less fun than the first one. But we know we're not just, when we're waiting, we're not just wiggling or moving for no no reason 
or not just for fun or because we want to, we end up wiggling while we wait because waiting in some way is usually hard. It hurts us to wait. You know, this word, when it's used elsewhere in the Old Testament scriptures, most often refers to the act of childbirth. It carries a note of anguish and distress. Writhing is the way it's often uh, portrayed. So in this scene with Noah, the whole world in the flood has been going through a sort of rebirth from God. There's a gestation period of 12 months in this watery womb, and then it ends with the ark opening and Noah and all of life coming out. And Noah's told, just like Adam and Eve had been told, now to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth again. The earth is being reborn here at the command of God. So that birth then, we should expect that there would be some sort of wince of the birth pains that come with the waiting. We know that not all waiting is the same, of course, right? Not all waiting is as pained as childbirth is. You know, waiting for, for the Pop-Tart to come out of the toaster it's very different kind of waiting than, say, waiting to meet the right person that I might marry or waiting for the Lord to come again in the fullness of all time. You know, the greater the thing and the longer we have to wait for it, that often brings greater glory, we could say, but also a greater wince to wait for. At any rate, most waiting, whatever the size, involves some sort of, of, of pain. And we should recognize that, that that wince of waiting is not a sign that we've messed it up. It's not a sign that we've done it wrong. In fact, waiting patiently in the Bible is sometimes just translated as long-suffering. And while that's often unpleasant, that's also often a part of love. And it's a good part of waiting well. Waiting winces. That's the second. Here's the third. Waiting weighs. Waiting weighs, as in measures or evaluates. So when we're waiting well, we're not just sitting on a bench with our hands neatly folded, nor are we just trying to find some sort of mindless distraction, open my phone and see what sort of thing I can scroll through, nor am I just sort of flip-flopping around, wiggling until the time comes up, although, full transparency, I sometimes do that. You know, but good waiting is much more than just kind of surrendering ourselves to the waiting and the wiggles. Good waiting channels itself into purposeful, action, at least as much as it can. So we, we notice here that Noah spends his final waiting weeks sending out birds. He was not told by God to do this. 
nor is it sin for him to do that either. He's not trying to usurp God's authority. He's not showing a lack of trust in God by doing this. Noah's still awaiting and obedient to God's command to go out. He's not trying to go around anything. Noah is just acting within his means to assess the wait time. The sending out of the birds is not just a panic move of desperation. You know, I'm going crazy. So he just like releases all the birds out of the ark and see what happens and cross his fingers and hope it's going to look good. No, this is very intentional, purposeful, measured even. He sends out one dove at a time and then waits. He waits for it to return. And then he waits another seven days and releases again. And then he waits another seven days and releases again. Now, what this might look in other contexts, I don't know. I don't know of many other waiting situations that might be weighed by using birds. That seems to be a unique circumstance. And, and some waiting, of course, we know we're just not able to reliably measure much of it or maybe none of it at all. But this at least tells us that it is okay and even good if we're able to to try to discern and weigh the weight. That's the third. Fourth and final thing that waiting does. Waiting wants. Waiting wants. You know the reason why why we wait for really anything, at least in part, is because we think at the end of the wait there is something desirable, something we want. And it's that, that goal, it's the thing that we want that makes us willing and able to wait. You know, I'm sure this time for Noah was not easy. He might be wiggling and wincing and weighing the weight and all these things, but he also sees something he wants. That at the end of this, there, there's new life after the ark that God would give, and he sees that as something that is worth the wait. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, we know that everything we want is good. We're sinners. There's still a lot of things, even as a redeemed Christian, that, that we want that are not of God, so we need to be wise to discern those things. But it does mean that we should want some things and even lean into the wanting. It's good to be eager, to be hungry for certain things. That's what Paul's talking about when he writes to the letter uh, to the Romans in chapter 8. He talks about creation longing for things. But then he says, uh, where is it? Verse 22. Nope, verse 23. He says, We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly, for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. In other words, he says, the Christian, the person who's in Jesus, we have been saved already. 
We are now saved in Jesus, just as Noah is now already saved inside the ark. So he's not waiting to see if he's going to make it or not. His salvation is secure in God. That's true of the Christian, that God remembers us and has forgotten our sin because he's put it on Jesus. At the same time, even though that's secure, there's an aspect of our salvation that is yet to be seen. Not yet to be determined, yet to be seen. There's a life after the ark. There's a final redemption. There's a glory that's to be revealed in us. There's an inheritance that comes with our adoption as sons of God. There's this renewal even of our whole bodies. We want that. We should want that. We've tasted now the first fruits of the Spirit and all of its juicy goodness. And in one sense, that satisfies us. But in another sense, it makes us groan, yearn eagerly for the things of God. And then we have to wait for these things that we want. We know some people try to avoid all feelings of longing. Some people try to avoid all feelings of longing Maybe because the longing draws attention to the groaning, the ache that's uncomfortable. Maybe because it reminds me of the things I might lack right now. Or maybe because we're, we're afraid to want something because we're afraid that we will be disappointed in the end. At any rate, we have to remember that it is God who is bringing us to wait here. And because it's a good God who calls us to wait, we wait for what is good with hope and with confidence. You know, things that kids often freely say, things like, oh, I just can't wait. Those are good words. That's often a good sign. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're being impatient. It means that they see that the thing that they want, they see the goodness of it. I just can't wait. I want it so bad. We want to cultivate that kind of eager waiting as we wait on the Lord. Now, to take us to the end, how do we cultivate that? How do we learn how to wait well? Because it doesn't come easy. And this is a big challenge. Waiting is a high hill, and there is a lot that stands in our way. There are loads of temptations to sin that are enemies of our waiting. Sometimes our own sense of entitlement. I know what I deserve, and I want, I want it when I want it. There's things like bitterness and idolatry and pride. All of that can stand in our way. But I think the most common enemy of waiting is sinful anger. 
anger, even, it, even when it comes in little flashes. You recognize that flash of anger when the package that you ordered takes more than five days to show up on your porch? Or, or when, when the, the waiter at the restaurant takes more than five minutes to come over to take your food order? Or when the website that you clicked on takes more than five seconds to load? When we're asked to wait and it brings this little flash, even when these circumstances or people don't change as quickly as we think they should change. We get angry that they made us wait. So how do we avoid indulging, nursing that anger, and instead pursue waiting patiently? Of course, we know that this all must come from God. Waiting patiently is a fruit of the Spirit that's only given by Jesus. It has to be a work of God in us. And with that, there are ways that we can cooperate with God's grace in us in this. And there's a particular detail in this text that I think will help us. At the very tail end of the ark, even after Noah has sent out all his birds and they've done all their birding, we get this little note uh, in verse 13. In the 600th year, 601st year, in the first month, first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering from the ark and looked. And behold, the face of the ground was dry. This is one of the last things he does. Somehow he takes off a lid, whatever that looked like, and he looks out on the earth with his own eyes after he's been on this ark for almost a year at this point, and he sees the land. Ah, land. All I've seen or heard was water, but there's land, and the ground is dry, right? At least that's the way it seems. In the text, it doesn't say that the ground was dry. It says the face of the ground was dry. That is, the surface, what he can see, looks dry on the top. Have you ever stepped outside after a long rain when the ground looks dry? You know what that sounds like underfoot? Now, can you imagine what it might have looked like beneath the surface of the ground after 40 days of rain and then months of flood drainage. The surface of the ground might look dry, but the ground itself is not. It is not ready. And we hear in the next verse, verse 14, that it's almost three more months before the earth itself is going to dry out and God tells Noah to go out of the ark. Now, we don't know what Noah did in that three-month span, or if he grew weary or even angry of waiting, but we do know this. God sees what Noah cannot see. God looks on all the earth, while Noah just looks on the surface of it. And this is helpful to us. Because if, when we're called to wait, this reminder can help guard us from sin to say to, to ourselves, I see just the surface. 
but I will trust that God sees all, and I will wait on his timing. Pray with me. Lord, help us in all these things to increase our trust and our hope in you. We know that our own impatience and anger often leads us to focus on our own way, but help us to wait upon you for all of our days, our years, our decades. Help us to wait in a way that brings you honor, that we would grow and you would be praised. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.